Hey, Three Crosses family, Pastor AJ back on the podcast with you. I oversee life groups and discipleship here, and we are coming to the tail end of our Explore God series. We hope this series has blessed you in so many different ways, not only to deepen your own faith, but to have conversations with your neighbors about some of these hard-hitting topics. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Is there a conversation that has stood out to you? Is there a topic that has resonated with your soul deeply? Send me an email, aj at threecrosses.church. We'd love to pass on some encouragement to this team who has made this series possible. One more thing we want to let you know before we get into the conversation. We at Three Crosses are hosting the Bay Area-wide Explore God Worship Night. We're using our sanctuary and our space to invite people on November 12th at 6 o'clock p.m. to come and join us as we worship the Lord together. All the churches that went through the Explore God series are invited, and so are you. Come on out November 12th at 6 o'clock p.m. Okay, as always, we have another great conversation in store for you guys. The question we are wrestling with is Christianity made in America? So here we go. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And with that, let's go deeper. How y'all doing? I'm going I'm to remember to do this right now. I'm going to introduce our panel. I, my name is Ryan Suzuki. I'm one of the pastors here. And I got to preach the message this last Sunday, so I get to give the recap about my own thing. So hopefully I can remember that. Go ahead. Go down the panel. I'm Randy, uh, also one of the pastors here. And uh, I think I'm here to represent the old guard. Hi, I'm Patty, and I'm uh, here in the area of care and equipping. Okay, so this Sunday we talked about, how many of you were here Sunday? Don't worry, I never shame anyone for not being here. Okay, online, online, hey, it counts. I'll get, it counts at least for the content, okay? So we talked about the question, is Christianity made in America? And I'm actually going to look at my notes because I... I got under, yeah, it was a, it was a long time ago. Uh, we talked about this idea. I started out with this story about a distant relative that God had called from Japan to leave Japan, to leave his home country um, and come to the United States. That's where he found himself, found himself in a church where he heard the gospel for the first time. This is uh, several generations ago and started this legacy of faith in my family. It's kind of this strange um this kind of strange journey that faith has in my dad's side. It's really interesting and if you stick around long enough around here, I'll, you'll probably hear all of it from me when I'm on stage. But um, we talked about these ideas about uh, sometimes that question, implicit in that question, is Christianity made in America? It's not really, I don't think any of us really believe that Christianity was made here. I think most people know that it did not start here. It started uh, in Jerusalem, in, in, the Judea, in the region of Judea, in the region of Israel, where Jesus had his ministry. That's where Christianity finds its roots and its home. But implicit in that question is kind of, a question about kind of almost a geographical lottery that we all, like if you're in this room, you live in, you are currently living in a country that even though Christianity is on the decline in the United States, Christianity is still the predominant religion in the United States. Still 64% of adults in, or 64% of adults in the United States identify as Christians of some stripe or another. And so here you, you can think, man, like, have I just, did, did I just get lucky? Did I hit the jackpot? Because I can, there's, you know, there's three crosses here. There's Redwood Chapel. There's the Nazarene Church. There's 
CV First, there's First Presbyterian Hayward, there's all these churches where you can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is, am I just the product of where I was born? And we talked about this, uh, lifting our heads up and seeing the global movement of the gospel. The gospel and the, 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 the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus has always been this global movement. And in fact, uh, Christianity is the only major world religion that does not, that its primary place of influence is not the place where it was birthed. That it's actually moved. It moved from Jerusalem, Judea, into the Roman world, found its way into Europe, Western Europe primarily, and where it had like a seat of of influence and its primary place where all its adherents were, that it moved to the United States, and now it's in all over the world right now. It's most prevalent, uh, kind of like, kind of the home base of Christianity, the place of largest growth is in Africa. And so there's this movement, and sometimes there's this assumption that we might have like, oh yeah, I was born here, I know there's a lot of Christianity here, like it's, what about those people out there? And we kind of got to see this movement of Christianity. Uh, even I read this stat of, by 2050, Africa will be home to 1.3 billion Christians. That's a lot of people. If you think about how many people are on, on the earth, 1.3 billion people in Africa will be Christians. Um, and so we saw this global movement of the gospel. That's always been God's plan and always what he's been doing. And this is an incredible thing about the Great Commission and about our part to play in that, that we're actually ambassadors for Jesus Christ wherever we go. And the good news is God cares about those in all these different places. And we moved on to the second question, um, so we have this global movement, and there's a hope that we have that God is at work all over the place. Um, and then we talked about this question around uh, the question about Christianity in the United States. And we showed some statistics that in 1972, is that right, 1972, uh, that 90% of Americans considered themselves Christians, yep, 1972. And by 2019, that number was down to 64%, and the number continues to decline. And this, great, this number is increasing of people who would identify themselves. If you ask, what's your religion? They would say, none. I don't have a religion. I don't have a thing that I identify with. But that's been growing to, I think, uh, a little over 37% of people would say, I don't have a religion. Um, and then even today, this idea that what happens in the United States, we've seen this, and we'll talk a little, we're going to get a little bit more into this today, um, is talking, or this evening, is this idea around there's this issue. That's happening. I think all of us are aware of it. There's a problem. I, I said a quote from former President Trump before he was elected, and not to like make any kind of statement about him, but really this kind of connection that there's this problem that we have in the relation of Christianity and political power institutions and policies. And there's a problem, you might see the problem in a variety of different ways. You might see the problem is, why are we doing that? We shouldn't be getting involved in things like that. Or you might think the problem is, yeah, what he's saying, what he's offering of this power, this place of authority, that's what we need. That's the problem. We don't have that. But we can all admit that we have a problem. But really, again, wanting to lift our heads up, as God has always called us to do, in terms of we see this decline, and the invitation isn't always just to hold on to what was, but to look at and see what God is going to do going forward. And I talked about this, we talked about this idea of revival that the church needs resurrection power. And I read this quote uh, from Timothy Keller, and I just actually want to just read the end of it. Um, it says, Christianity, like its founder, does not go from strength to strength. It doesn't just go from one great thing to the next great thing. But like its founder, like Jesus, Christianity goes from death to resurrection. It's this beautiful thing that God takes dead and dying things and brings life and brings beauty, and brings wholeness. And the invitation to us 
is to join with Jesus in that work. So for us, we, even this last year, we've been talking a lot about being, we, we brought in uh, Dave Runyon, talked about the art of neighboring, talked about being good neighbors to those around us, bringing, pe- I mentioned uh, from the book of Jeremiah, where God calls his people to be, to seek the peace and prosperity of the place where they found themselves, wherever they are. And that's true for us, as, as true for us as it was for the Israelites back when Jeremiah spoke those words. And just encouraged us all to find those ways. Where's God leading you? into that, that kind of way of bringing peace and prosperity? Where is he leading you to bring gospel light and fullness and wholeness and all these things that we desire? So we want to talk about one of the things that you're probably thinking about. And then honestly, I didn't want to, I didn't bring up for a reason just because I wanted to focus on some of these. Um, I wanted to focus on this movement of the gospel. I wanted to focus on where we're lifting our heads up. But today, like in the news, if you read if you're in the, watching the news, you're reading the newspaper, you're on social media or anything like that, there's um, this movement, uh, maybe even a new expression of an old movement or kind of a, I don't even know how to describe, well, we'll talk about that, but talk about Christian nationalism. So that's like kind of a buzzword and kind of a thing that's been going on lately. Um, and so I wanted, I'm going to point this to Patty. Patty did some little bit, a little more research and thought and under this, but can you describe Christian nationalism as it is being debated and processed among believers. And we're talking about what we're seeing primarily in the news today, what we've been hearing about a lot lately in the past year or so, a couple of years. So I'm kind of curious, you don't have to say it loud, but how you would answer that if you had, especially somebody outside of Christianity asking you, what is going on with Christians in America? What are we seeing? What's happening? Um, I think one of the things that that I was really helped for by doing doing a little bit more research this week is just really slowing down the conversation and making sure we're defining terms. Um, Christian nationalism, there can be three different expressions of Christian nationalism. We can see what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, the rioting and the storming of the Capitol as one form of Christian nationalism, but we can also see a movement to try to change laws um, and maybe even bring um, God's law to override American law um, through like a fusion of Christianity and America. And then we can see a third expression of Christian nationalism, which would be that we want to influence um, through election, through our writings, through think tanks, through blogs. Um, We want to, as Christians, influence what's happening in America. And those are three very different expressions of Christian nationalism. So it's really important, like James encourages us, to be slow to speak, quick to hear, and it's always good to ask lots of questions. So if you're getting asked this question by neighbors, friends, family members, I think it's really important to find out what are they depends on which news source they listen to, what is their idea of what this Christian nationalism means? Yeah. I was just thinking about, even when you were saying that, like we talked a little bit, I kind of got approached this a little bit in the end in the application talking about just like what is God's will for you, determining God's will for you and what his call for you is in terms of your and your engagement in civic life. And um, and even that last one, like we, you kind of talked about this other this third way when we talk about Christian nationalism as being like civic engagement, advocating for things that we believe in and we care about. And that's kind of more of that, like, of that thing that we see. It, even when you're talking about James, of course, the last part of quick, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow, slow to, to become, become angry. angry. So that's a good one. Uh, yeah. So we talked about, Patty, you talked a little bit, you read this article. This is a, by Patrick Schreiner. It was a Gospel Coalition article. It's called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of Christian Nationalism. 
and talked about uh, some of these different areas. Did you want to break those down, or do you want me to talk about some of those? However you want to do it. Go for it. I well, talked I think, so I think, much last I think Sunday. giving you a little bit of peek behind the curtain, um, I hope this is okay, Ryan, but as we were listening in sermon review and talking through this process of how do we equip um, our, belie- our believers, um, those who are finding three crosses or three crosses at home, how do we, how do we equip them in how to, how to have a Christian worldview of what's happening around us? And I think that's why we... Um, this is where Ryan was going anyway, but the, the support of those of us who were listening to his sermon beforehand were encouraging, let's, let's focus first on the globalization of the gospel and um, by means of alleviating fear that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church. Amen? Amen? And we don't need to be afraid. The fear of anything other than the Lord leads to foolishness. So if we are fearful... Um, people, we are going to grab for power. So that was why it was so intentional for Pastor Ryan to add um, civic engagement to application versus have that be the meat of his message. Because the meat of the message, we wanted it to be holding Jesus high and that he is the one that is on the move and he cannot be stopped. Um, So then that brings us into the good of Christian, if there's such a thing as a good Christian nationalism, um, which is a bit debatable because it's kind of been hijacked, it would be the influence, that we are a people who want to influence government, again, through um, election, through think tanks, through our podcasts, through our writings, but more importantly, through loving one another and loving our neighbor and um, doing the good that we're asking the government to do for us, we actually do the good um, and be an influence grassroots level. If that's what we mean by Christian nationalism, then that's a good thing. So the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christian nationalism, that's the good thing. Unfortunately, that's not what most people mean by the term. Um, And that's that quote. If Christian nationalist is someone who believes that a citizen, that as citizens, our views should influence our nation, then surely every Christian falls under that label. But this isn't what most people mean by Christian nationalism. What most people mean is either the bad or the ugly. And so the bad is this fusion, this idea that we must infuse all American law with God's law, and all American law must serve the living God. That's the fusion. And then the domination is, and we will do it by force. So that's the bad, and then the ugly is to do it by force. And these are very anti-Christian ideas. These are not what our country actually was founded on, and they are destructive in many, many ways. It was really fascinating. I like I, I was doing some research for this. I read a bunch of books from Christians that kind of went back through the political history of the United States, like to, like where we started from. And it was founded on this like, idea. I, none of this made it in because it didn't quite fit, but it, even just to talk about it, this idea that when our nation was found, when the United States was founded, it was founded on this idea that all of us, this very Christian idea that we're all sinful and that we all, like, to our core, there's this idea, if you've ever, maybe you've heard of this term, total depravity, that we're not as bad as we could be, but every part of our lives, every part of our lives is indelibly affected and distorted because of sin. So really, like, our hearts can't be trusted, uh, our minds really can't be trusted, anything. We need to have a restored heart, mind, and soul by the work of Jesus Christ. So there was this starting, like, that we actually don't know what's best, and we need systems and process that will help guide us and point us in the right direction, will overrule kind of our sinful thoughts and desires. And along the way, something changed, where it became like, actually, we're all, 
actually, maybe we're all good and got away from this Christian idea, this very Christian idea that, hey, we're all kind of, we, there's a distorted thing. And it, it reminded me, yeah, of, uh, oh, go ahead. Okay, that, yeah, the whole checks and balances, the three forms of government is the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. And now here as a, the ugly part of Christian nationalism is we want absolute power. And somehow that our absolute power won't corrupt us yeah. is, is, is a fallacy. So, Randy, I was going to ask you, just, just thinking about, you know, I know you say you represent our, our, the oldest among us and things like that, but I think there is a, some reality to, there is a change. I mean, I shared with this, even in my lifetime, it has changed in the last 38 years. You know, I, I, I can remember those things. Like, how have you, how do you shepherd people? How do you walk through that? How have you experienced that yourself? And you're also a guy that you've lived in different parts of the world and been a believer and a representative of Christ in these different places. Like, what's that look like? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think probably if there's anything that I can bring to the discussion tonight, it's that experience that God has given me to, to live outside of the U.S. for um, a significant period of time in two vastly different cultures and political systems um, from what we have here in the States. It was... 40 years ago next summer that I went to China for the first time and lived in China for six years. Um, was there during the 1989 democracy movement that the, when the students demonstrated in Tiananmen Square, I was there in those years. Um, so, and I'm from very white bread America. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Bible Belt, very conservative um, upbringing, went to all white schools. Um, and when I went to China was actually the first time that I had ever left the US. But God rocked my world as I had opportunity to, to see that not everybody lives the way we live and not everybody has the same values that we have and try to figure out how the gospel can make sense in this kind of environment. And I realized that I needed to go more as a learner and a listener and an observer than going in and imposing ways and systems that I think would work but may not work in that particular uh, cultural situation. So through that, those cross-cultural experiences, both six years in China and eight years in Cambodia and working with international students um, when I've been here in the United States has given me a, a real sensitivity to, um, there are different ways of seeing things. Um, and one of the things that I, that I, like even now when I watch the news, I don't watch, I watch the BBC because I feel like that is where I see the most balanced view um, of the world situation. And in experiences in, in living among expatriates in other countries, um, when we were in Cambodia, we, we had missionary friends from Australia, from the Philippines, from the UK, from Europe, uh, all around. And I can remember during one of our recent elections, uh, I won't mention which one of them it was, but I can remember being in Cambodia and having expat friends, meaning people who are not Americans, friends of mine, that would say, what's wrong with your country? And honestly, it was a humiliating question um, that I didn't have an answer for. 
Uh, so, and I was also humbled by the fact that the rest of the world, at least as I've experienced, is keenly aware of what's going on in the U.S. But Americans know almost nothing about what's going on in other countries. And so I feel like that we need to broaden our view a little bit. We need to be more sensitive to the people among us who have different values than we, we do and who were raised with different values, um, even political values, and be more open-minded in discussion with them. And I do have a story that I want to share a little bit yeah. later yeah. as we sure. uh, come to it. You stop me anytime you want to tell that story. I was just thinking about even going back to this idea where we're going out and this kind of civic engagement. And I, in this quote, it's like, if a Christian nationalist is someone who believes that as a citizen, our views should influence our nation, then surely every Christian falls under that label. And really that, that can really be expanded to any nation that any of us, wherever we are, like I know even in this room, there's some of us that are not naturalized citizens, that we come from, have different countries of origin, different from around the globe, or you know someone, or you're married to someone, or you're friends with someone, you know these things like, actually, that's the beauty of, again, that kind of movement of the gospel, that every culture um, has its strengths that it brings and helps bring a shaping to the gospel, and a, like a lens that we can look at through. And all of us have our issues, too. You think about the United States, that we're a very individualistic culture. Like just That's what we are. I'm half Japanese. I've been able to go to Japan. I went to Japan twice in the past couple of years, and it like blows my mind how like very familiar it is on the one hand, and how incredibly different it is over there. Like there's a respect for kind of systems and authority that like I always tell the story. We were at we were in Kyoto. My wife and my I were there, and there's there is literally metered crosswalks that are from here to here. So it's like there's a stop sign, and I'm like no one will go. Like you could take a long step over it. No one will go until the light is green. No one will go. What would happen if that was here? Like no one would, it would that would be the most ignored crosswalk in the universe, right? And there's something to that though. There's some like the value that I see in that. It's like there's something about the kind of respect, the kind of just honor that is given and the and that kind of reverence even towards this, hey, we're doing this for the sake of other people. We're doing this for the sake of order. And we have a God that's a God of order. So you see these things that are highlighted in all these different cultures. And I thought like, I was reading a little bit about, uh, so a friend of mine pointed me to Thomas Aquinas, a Christian philosopher. And he talked about how patriot, like talked about patriotism as a lesser virtue. And patriotism isn't just in Aquinas's view, wasn't a, just a love of country. It wasn't like, I love my country of origin. I love the United States. I love Japan. I love the UK. I love Cambodia. It was a love of your countrymen. That patriotism is about like, I have, like, I have love, a high, one of the highest virtues of a Christian. But there's also this, and I have almost like a soft spot in my heart for my countrymen around me that I love these people that God has placed me around. But it's always this, it's a lesser virtue. The higher virtue is love for all of God's creatures, all of God's people. And there's this lesser virtue that's still good, that we can be seeking peace and prosperity for the people around us. I love how, you know, I read this, uh, this, this passage from the Epistle of Diognetus, this kind of early Christian apologetic and just the way that Christians live. That like we live, like even in the United States, wherever our country of origin is, like it's, I was born here. I was born at UCLA Medical Center, but I'm also just, I'm just a traveler here. 
that I'm just in this place for now, and I will most likely die an American citizen, like in that way, like my passport will be USA. But I'm really a citizen of heaven. It's this kind of temporary place where I am until I have this realized thing. And even in this room, again, like I'm looking in this room, I got people that aren't naturalized US citizens. Like, but all of us who claim Christ, all of us, we're citizens of heaven together. It's this, this amazing thing. We all have the passport, and one day it'll get stamped, and it'll be incredible, and it will be beautiful, and we're all going to be there together. And I just keep going back to that idea, even Revelation. Like I love that. I love that passage. Like every tongue, tribe, and nation, you're going to be standing around. We're going to stand before King Jesus, and you're going to see everyone from everywhere, from every time. And we're all going to be there. Yeah, that's one of the most beautiful things about being in another culture. Um, I've traveled both to Haiti, Europe, and then Central Asia, where I've done a lot more work with the underground church, Muslim background believers. And sitting and worshiping with these leaders in the underground church, and they're singing a song in in their, their native language that I don't know the words, but I recognize the tune, you know? So I can start singing in English as they're singing in Uzbek or Kazakh. And, um, and I realize in that moment, I have more in common with you than I have in common with an American who doesn't know Jesus. And I think that's one of the things we want to really push on is do we truly have more in common with those who know Jesus or do we have more in common with those who hold our political ideologies or who hold our American values? And I think that's a really important thing to consider. And what's so great about pulling back and thinking about this globalization, this global movement of Jesus is whether we like it or not, um, English will not be the language of heaven. Um, American flag will not be flying in all of eternity. We have, we have a loyalty to something much greater, mm-hmm. and that helps us serve our country and love our country better because it's not who we love most. You know, if we, if we love Jesus most and we're about his kingdom, we're better citizens of this king. I think it's C.S. Lewis that said, being too heavenly minded is to be no earthly good, but to be too earthly minded is to be no heavenly good. Mm-hmm. And so we aren't having that influence that we could be having. We could find a pure patriotism if our absolute loyalty is in Jesus. And we have dashboard you know, lights that tell us when our loyalty has switched. You know, when we have placed our hope in chariots, when we placed our hope in governments instead of Jesus, anger rises, anxiety rises, um, divisions rise, and the fruits of the flesh instead of the fruits of the spirit. And so we can't enter discourse, we can't enter discussion, we can't enter argument well because we have to, um, because we're fearful. But if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that wisdom. So I, I think traveling around and saying, oh my goodness, I'm kind of curious what will be the language of heaven. It'll be probably none that we have here on earth that I really do have more in common with those who, I think Scott Saul says it really well in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. Great read, Jesus Outside the Lines. Do we have more in common with those who claim the name of Christ um, who are of the opposite political party Or do we have more in common of those who are in the same political party as us, but do not claim the name of Christ? And that is something to really consider. I was thinking about that kind of American Christianity and 
I think, Randy, you'd probably be more aware of this, just living outside of the United States. So where is it how our culture has influenced our faith? And I, I think even from a positive way and in an, even a negative way, have you seen that? Have you brought, like, any, has God brought any awareness to, to you in that regard? Well, I think that American culture is more individualistic than even most Western cultures are. So that individualism has creeped into our relationship with God as well and our relationship to the church, to the community of faith, um, so that it's to, it's to serve my needs and it's to meet uh, my needs, not so much my part in the community to the meeting the needs of all within the community. So I feel that that uh, American culture has influenced our interpretation, our flavor of Christianity in that way. But I also feel that it's a great privilege that we have to individually have choice in regard to our faith, which many in many cultures people do not have right. um, that choice. In Cambodia, for example, the, the national motto of Cambodia is nation, religion, king. So this religion, which is Buddhism in Cambodia, is their national religion. And to the Cambodian people, to be, to be Cambodian is to be Buddhist. And so if you are not Buddhist, if you become a Christian in Cambodia, for example, then you're no longer really a Cambodian because Cambodia is Buddhist. So there is a tie of nationalism to religion in a way in that kind of culture that we don't have here. You can be Buddhist and be American. You can be Muslim and be American. You can be atheist and be American. So in that way, it's nice that we have that privilege in our culture um, that others don't. And yet we sometimes bring our worldview, our point of view, to, to bear that you need to be like me, right? Because Jesus is the only way and you're gonna to go to hell and I don't care what you believe. You're gonna to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. So it's important for us to have zeal for our faith and for the gospel, but also respect for those who don't um, have the same background and values that we've been mm -hmm. raised with. Yeah. I was just thinking about like the way that Jesus always interacted with people and it was with understanding, but without with, it was that like truth and love and there was that respect for, there was this respect, even though he, he's God, he has, he has the answers, he has the opportunity, he has all these things. And yet he addresses people with dignity and with respect. God keeps bringing this to mind, but I was thinking about, uh, so I grew up in Castor Valley, moved here when I was, I moved here when I was four years old. Uh, we moved up here because my, I was born in LA at UCLA Medical Center. My dad got a job at San Francisco State and we moved up here. And I went to Castro, I went to, I went to uh, actually I went to Happiness Hill Preschool right here on our campus. That was my first interaction here. I went to Stanton Elementary, went to Canyon Middle School, went to Castro High, spent a year at Chabot uh, College, my beautiful alma mater. Uh, but I was just thinking about Even my- Tom Hanks. Tom, I Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks Tom Hanks there. is a big uh, Chabot guy. Anyway, so uh, I remember just going like, and now I have a son, I have a daughter, I have kids, and now they're in those places and I just feel like, there's this opportunity that they have. And I remember like when I was in school, I was at Stanton, I mean, uh, Canyon and Castro High. It was probably the most passionate I was ever in my life about sharing my faith. Like I just, I was inviting friends to church. I was telling people about Jesus. And it was just this amazing opportunity where I got to be 
a Christian, I, I feel like living out that kind of engagement with people. And I, now I'm thinking about with my kids and sometimes I, you know, my wife's here. So we wrestle with sometimes like, should, where should we have them? And at the same time, we're like, we're so glad and we're so, we're praying for them as they go into their schools, like Mason's at Canyon now and he's inviting friends to church or my daughter is the mayor of Marshall Elementary and she's just constantly, she'll take her Bible to school. It's like, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. They've never heard about this Bible story. And there's this place where this engage, like, that influence, that they have a great love for these people, but they just want to bring this influence and they love they love the Lord and they love the people around them. And I feel like that's just that opportunity, like great love that we have, that engagement that we can have, the bringing the pre- peace and prosperity to these places. And that um, comes with yeah. religious liberty, yeah. right? So yes. if we want to restrict, um, if we want to become a Christian nation by force and restrict religious liberty, we need to be careful because then we will be the ones that will be the recipients of the restrictions. If we think that that won't happen to us, this, the idea that we have liberty so that your kids can yeah. go onto their campus and speak the truth, that is something that we hold yeah. hold precious and dear. I was going to ask you, Patty, that even the same thing with what is being an American done to, our, to, to Christianity and to our faith. Like what kind of influences come to bear in that? Yeah, I think it was interesting. When I was first asked to travel to Central Asia, I was asked to do um, some teaching on marriage and family. And I remember telling the woman who was bringing me in to work with, yeah, these leaders in the underground church, like, I'm not going to talk on marriage and family. I don't know how much my view of marriage and family is American and how much of it is biblical. I'm still untangling what is really the Bible and what is the American dream that's been put onto Christianity or American ideals. You know, the, the 1950s housewife with the pearls and the vacuum. I don't know if that's in the Bible, really. I need to study that further. And so um, I just shared with her, hey, we're going to stick to like Sermon on the Mount. And, and I'll ask them how, to, how they want to apply it to their culture so I can learn their culture. So I think my husband and I both have been on a long journey of trying to understand what of, what of our faith is American version of Christianity and what is biblical Christianity. It doesn't mean that it's unbiblical, but it may be extra biblical or, um, and some of it can be unbiblical. So I do think the idea of the American dream, Randy hit it as far as this individualism, but also this protectionism, um, that is not an ideal, not, it's not a high, high on Jesus' values, you know, a value list, a mission, vision, um, is to protect. He breaks borders between people, groups, and he breaks borders between between even lands. Um, so some of it's that protectionism, um, the individualism, and yeah, and just thinking through, I think, I think it's, it's part of what's causing a lot of our young people to deconstruct. Some of the things that they're deconstructing away from in Christianity isn't actually Jesus's Christianity. It isn't actually the Christianity of the Bible. It's some of the things that we as a church and evangelicalism have, have taken from from the history of America or different epochs of history in America. So it's just really important for us to get back to the scriptures and really say, what is what is the humanity of Jesus? What is the citizenship of heaven that crosses all cultural boundaries? And so I'm still in the process of figuring some of those out. And we're still on a journey with our adult children in this, in this and just asking the Lord to strip from us what how our Americanism has influenced our Christianity. Um. I think that in the Bay Area, it's we have this beautiful uh, privilege 
to live in such a mixed um, culture, it, it's not always, it's not clean when cultures live closely in contact with one another. It's not orderly because we do things differently. We believe things differently. We have concepts of time that are different from other places. And all those kinds of things were influenced by our cultures. So it's much easier when we live alongside people who have the same values that we do. Um, and it's much more difficult to live alongside people who don't have yeah. the same values that we do. Uh, I am also cross-culturally married. Um, my wife, Crystal, who I've been married to for almost 29 years now, uh, is from Taiwan. She came to the US when she was a graduate student. So she had lived her entire growing up years um, in Taiwan and came here as an international student. So we live every day in our house in a cross-cultural experience. And even after almost 29 years of being married to each other, there is not a day that goes by that we don't confront something in our marriage, in our view of life, that is different from each other. And we both have to adjust. And it's not easy uh, because her way is the right way. And my way is the right way, right? Yeah. And so when that happens in your house, when that happens in your neighborhood, when that happens in your school, when that happens in your church, then there are going to be, there are bound to be issues of different kinds of people with different kinds of cultural values trying to live in peace yeah. with one another. It's not easy, but it is so exciting and it's so beautiful yeah. to see God's people come together one in Christ and confront these things, not in a domineering, dominating kind of way, but a recognition that not everybody does things the way I do things. Um, I was thinking a few minutes ago about when we were talking about different languages. And uh, there's a joke you may have heard that if you're trilingual, you, you speak three languages, right? If you're bilingual, you speak two languages. And if, you're, if you speak one language, you're American. So, which is very true. You go around the world and people speak multiple languages. And so we've, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have lived in a very narrow kind of environment. And when we, when we rub up against something that is different from us, in some way we chafe and it's difficult. Mm -hmm and it's easy for us to run back to what's comfortable. So I, I feel like in the Bay Area, one of the reasons that my family has decided to stay here in the Bay Area and not fly to, back to Oklahoma or Texas or Idaho or wherever the, uh, the Californians have gone is because our son- You mean to utopias? Do you, yeah. To the, yeah, the utopias, exactly. But we have a son from Cambodia. My wife is Taiwanese, I'm Caucasian American, our son is Cambodian, but he's only Cambodian on the outside because he was raised in our American value standard kind of environment at home. And so we want him to be in a place where there are others that look like him. There are others who have life experience like him. Uh, Oklahoma is much better than it was when I was growing up in terms of plurality of culture, but it's still very monoculture in, in many ways. 
and I want Noel to grow up in a place where there are, he's surrounded by people like him and unlike him, so that he has to, to learn how to adjust to that, because that's the world that we live in today. One of the things I was thinking about was even like the gift for me, uh, I don't know if you, if some of you will probably feel the exact same way, is this church in particular, I think here, is an incredibly, incredibly diverse place in all these different ways, socioeconomically, culturally, ethnically, uh, age range, all these different things. And I just remember, I, you know, I've been here for a long time and I've actually been able to see it change. And I remember looking back on a Sunday and just thinking like, whoa, there's a, this is not the same church that I grew up in. It's so beautiful. It's a picture of the, to me, it is a picture of that revelation idea that there's all these different people and it's just something to celebrate and to see all these different things. And honestly, so I was gone for six years at uh, a different church and I, that's, I would tell people the thing I missed most is this group of people that God brought together, that God continues to draw into our, this place and space. It's my favorite, th it's one of my favorite little blessings about being here. And even in that, um, I was just thinking about how much, like when you're saying it brings like that, it can bring these kind of chafing, but I think the other thing, honestly, that it brings is it brings a lot of unity in a strange way. Because I feel like one of the, th that, the that high virtue we have as Christians is that we love one another, that we're gracious with one another, and so now when we're encountering some of those things like, whoa, that is not the way that I grew up doing it, or that's not the way that we did this, we're realizing, but, you know, but this is also my brother, or this is my sister in Christ, and they don't necessarily do it the exact same way I do it, but they still worship the same God. And so I think it broadens, it broadens us, and it lets us see a different perspective. And I love that about our church. It's, it is one of, honestly one of my favorite things I talk about all the time. Just I'll, one last thing. I know, Patty, you got something good. But date, when Dave Runyon, so if you remember, he's the author of The Art of Neighboring. He came at the end of summer last year. He, he pulled Danny uh, and me it, multiple times. Like, he's, he told me, I'm not just telling you this. This is the most, he's like, I speak at a lot of churches. This is the most diverse church I've ever seen. We're like, oh, yeah, thank you. He's like, I'm, I'm serious. I want you to hear me. Like, this is amazing what God is doing here. And we're like, that's great. We, we believe we're awesome. And then later in the day, he texted us like, I just want to be clear. I'm not just saying a nice thing to you. Like, it's incredible what the Lord is doing there. And so it's just something that I, I just want to just celebrate as part of what, what we bring in here, this kind of peace and prosperity, this thing that we're trying to bring to our community and to our, and to our region, to our state, to our nation, to the world. So, yeah. Patty, you had... No, I was just thinking that it's a, another aspect of the globalization of Christianity. It can happen in our own in our own um, sphere, in our own space here, um, what happens when we do push through those walls and we go ahead and be uncomfortable and ask hard questions and enter into each other's worlds is that we see a bigger view of God. So that globalization of the gospel within our, our own world expands, even if we can't travel. We get to see God in another way. One of the funny stories, not such a great funny story, actually, um, ironic story was, you know, I told you I was asked to teach on marriage and family. Well, I ended up teaching through Genesis, um, kind of the, some of the women in Genesis, just to kind of get a feel for the culture. And I was talking about Sarah and Hagar. And so I opened it up to a discussion time with an interpreter so I could hear how it was landing. And one of the women said, well, I'm the second wife. I'm like, wait a minute. You're joking, right? No, I'm working with Muslim background believers. Some of these women are second and third wives. 
They are believers now, but Muslims in Central Asia have multiple wives. She could give me and speak to Hagar's point of view and Sarah's point of view and give me a view of my God as father in a way that I could never now, had I gone into that context and just said, every man, one wife, and, you know, if I had, if I had preached my context without getting into her context first, and her husband's not a, not a believer yet, so she, this is where she lives. She can't walk out and leave this situation. I can't say to her, well, you're a polygamist and you better leave him. She's on the streets in that culture if she leaves. That's her protection. So again, how important it is to, to be careful in these contexts, but also how much I got to learn from her. And I'm so glad I didn't go in there with some of my, you yeah. know, pre, prefabbed ideas of what she should and shouldn't do. Another instance was um, either women are beaten in Central Asia by their husbands if they're good wives. And so... You know, again, I would go into that with my American idea. Well, we need to get the police involved and we need to do, if you do that, you end up harming her worse. And so we move into these spaces carefully, but we also get to get a, a, a more global view yeah. of God, even in our own, in our own space. And I think that if, if God has brought people of varied backgrounds to a church, to our church, then the onus is on us as a church to find ways to make the gospel palatable to people from all different kinds of cultures. Um, we can't expect people to adhere to one um, dogma, well, not dogma, but you know what I'm, what I'm saying. Just we need, to, we need to find ways to communicate the gospel in pluralistic language so that people from different cultures can grasp what the gospel really is. Yeah. Um, one thing that came to my mind in just comparing uh, Eastern cultures to more Western cultures and the value of the individual in Western culture. So if your adult child, if you've been praying for your adult child's spouse, and, and so they finally find a girlfriend or a boyfriend that eventually becomes a fiancé and they want to get married, and you somehow along the way find out that your child's soon-to-be spouse is from a different religion, right? You will be grieved. You will pray that this uh, comes to some kind of conclusion that is glorifying to God. But as an American who values the, the individual um, and the rights of individuals, even with your child at the end of the day, I think most of us would say, okay, if that's what you decide to do, then that's what you do. Well, that is vastly different than people from other cultures. Um, they do not have that prerogative that, and I've, I've known many in Cambodia, uh, Cambodian believers who married unbelievers or unbelievers who married believers. And many Cambodians who become Christians, young Cambodians who become Christians, you know, we, we would always say, well, pray for a Christian husband or a, or a Christian wife. And, and they would say, well, uh, Papa Randy, that's what they called me, Papa Randy, there are so few Christians in Cambodia. The likelihood of me being able to find a spouse who's a Christian is so low, right? And then if I do find one, my parents are not going to allow me to marry them. Um, I can't continue to be their daughter or their son if I marry this person who is not Buddhist. So our values from our culture influence us at those very deep levels. Mm. So for us as Westerners, we value individualism. So at the end of the day, it's your decision. Um, I grieve, but it's your choice, and I'm not going to stand in your way. 
But in other cultures, people don't have that kind of prerogative. Mm. So as we bring the gospel to them, we bring it to them with an awareness of the kinds of struggles that the gospel will bring in their unique situation. We kind of get to, uh, towards the uh, conclude. I wanted to just talk about even when I was on the sermon, I wanted to get to this place of of the hope because there is hope even on the decline in the United States. There's hope because there's explosive growth on around the world. But I don't. It's also not. I hope I don't give the sense of okay, it's it's on its way out here in the states and it's all over. No, that's why I kind of read that Keller quote because this idea of of revival and of re- resurrection power and of redemption and all these different things and. Uh, I just wanted to ask the two of you, where do you see that happening? You know, where I, I think that all of us can see, maybe looking out at what's happening in the United States, maybe it's what's happening in the Bay Area, maybe it's, it's what's happening here in our community. Where do you see these opportunities, these bright, these lights of revival and what God is doing and will continue to do? I think one of the things that's been most hopeful um, is the, the demise of secularism. It's not working. Um, we thought we could be happy apart from any kind of faith. And that's why we're seeing a rise in spiritualism, people who are interested in spiritual spirituality. And I've counseled parents who are concerned that their kids are looking into different forms of spirituality. But the thing that I think is encouraging is it's an admission that the material world is not enough. I need something outside of me to make sense of my life. And so I do think there's a rise in interest in spirituality that's happening in our country, and what an incredible moment. The other thing that was on your graph is the rise of Islam. It's not rising as fast as Christianity, but it is on the rise because, again, people are wanting some sort of security about what happens about life after death. That's the one thing Islam and Christianity have in common is this pursuit, this desire for eternal life. So I do think this rise of, of in within our country of people going, you know what, this whole secular idea, living in a world unenchanted, living in a world that this is all there is, is not working. And I, there's something in me, of course, it's the God image in me. There's something in me that says, no, there's more. There's something existential. There's something out there that gives my life meaning. So I think that's one thing I think yeah. is super encouraging. I actually find it encouraging that the, that the younger generations are challenging us as Christians to what is biblical, what is Jesus, what is the gospel versus what is um, American evangelicalism. I actually find that hopeful. I think it helps us take to really, really, really pursue. Um, yeah, I, I can remember my daughter-in-law has asked me questions about from spanking to submission, and and I just love that she asks instead of just does whatever anyone tells her to do. As a young mom and as a as a young wife, I just did whatever my Sunday school class told me to do, and I didn't pursue what does Jesus say. So I love that this generation is asking hard questions. I love that there's a rise in spiritualism. I even think it's a good news that there's even people are interested in Islam. We need to get tell them the truth of Jesus first. But there's this longing to know that I'm eternally secure. So I, I think those are super hopeful. And um, yeah, and, and also the bringing back of the gospel to evangelicalism. There's been a rise of, let's get back to the good news of Jesus. Instead of this do good, try harder message, 
what is the message of the gospel? Somebody has done it for me, and I can lean into him, and he will change me. I can trust him to to give his righteousness to me, to pay for my sin, to give me his spirit, and then I can become like him versus, okay, I just take a verse, and I better go out there and figure out how to do it. Yeah, I'm encouraged to see that, uh, like it or not, God is pluralizing his body here um, in, the United, in the U.S. Um, you know, I think of the words that are engraved on the tablets on the Statue of Liberty, bring me your tired, your oppressed, and all of that, yearning to, to be free. And uh, God has done that, and he's brought the nations to us here. It's what our nation was founded on in terms of its principles, and so it's happening, and it's happening in the church as well. Um, the book that was that came out during COVID uh, by the African American pastor called One Blood, um, which in that very uh, tumultuous time of the 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 after effects of George Floyd and and all of that, this book was speaking the message that the church is the only institution in the world that has the true message of reconciliation, um, and so we of all people need to be upholding the banner of racial and every kind um, of recognition. And so I'm proud to see the church doing that. Uh, the church at large and this church, I'm happy to be a part of a body that I see that happening. Uh, I remember a conversation that I had a few years ago when I was back for a short time from Cambodia. And I had come to church on a Sunday here. And the following week, I was um, having lunch with a friend who is an attender here at Three Crosses, a white guy. And uh, so we had lunch, and I said this was when uh, Brian Andes was our worship pastor here at Three Crosses, a young Filipino guy. And uh, I remember saying to my friend after lunch that day, oh, I'm so glad to see um, our, our worship pastor um, is a Filipino guy. And so he's like, my friend was like, well, why do you say that, you know? It, it doesn't matter, right? And I said, it doesn't matter to us, meaning myself and to, to my friend, because we are part of the dominant culture in our church. But it matters to people who look like Brian to see their people represented on our stage. And I love to see the diversity that we see on our staff here at Three Crosses and among our body, because we, we say by who we are, that the nations are welcome here. Um, and that, I believe, is the gospel, that the nations are welcome um, in the body of Christ. I always love that. There's this image in Ephesians where it talks about like Jesus tore down the dividing wall in the temple. Like in the dividing walls divided, as you got closer to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, the, the, the kind of physical representation of God's presence on earth and every layer, every court of the temple, there's these walls that would, okay, only... There's the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jewish person, that's as close as you could get to the presence of God. And there was the court of women. So only, that was as far as a Jewish woman could get to the presence of God. And there's this there's inner court and then the Holy of Holies where only the high priest one time per year could go into the presence of God. And it talks about how when Jesus was crucified, it talks about in, it's, it's in Mark, 
Is it Luke? Where am I going? It's in one of the Gospels. It talks about this veil being torn between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. And Ephesians talks about this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles being deconstructed, being torn down. And there's this beautiful thing that in the church, again, like going back to Revelation, that the church, the people of God, are made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So, And yeah, there's this idea that we're all there, we're all a part of it, and we're all bringing the goodness that God has brought to us and imparted to us and uh, to his kingdom. And so I'm just so proud to be a part of a, what God is doing. It's, it's just, inter- it's so good to be a part of where he's at work. Uh, when I just think about like what God is doing, I think about uh, Randy, I was, you were, Randy was a counselor for a bunch of, what, what grade were they? What grade were the boys this summer? Oh, 11th grade. Yeah, 11th junior boys at summer camp. This, this year. And I just think about all those, you talked about how much those boys meant to you and just this idea that they're the next generation of the church, that they're handing it off. Amen. I thought about, uh, I know, I think about my kids are, they're pastor's kids, but they have a faith of their own. I got to baptize my son uh, two, two summers ago. Yeah, two summers ago. It was so beautiful. And my daughter's been, she wants to do it too. She just turned nine and she loves And I just see that, that spark of faith and even with my daughter, when she'll have, she's asking her friends and telling them about Jesus, and they, they're kind of leaning in, they're asking questions, they're wondering. Um, and I just see a church, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this in here, or we've said it in the main service, but we're, we have baptism Sunday, this Sunday, celebrate new life this Sunday. So I know even in this room, some people are getting baptized. I say that because this last year, last year we had 90 baptisms for the year, which is, that's incredible. This year, with this service, I think we're going to be close to 130 baptisms in 2023. And that's incredible. That guy, it, it, you just have a little bar graph. Just, just, I want to see. Like, for me, seeing who's getting baptized is the sign of vi- spiritual, obviously, spiritual vitality. People giving their lives to Jesus. People submitting their lives to him. It's just like this graph just keeps growing, growing, growing. People even membership in our church. You know, some of you have been members for a long time. I've been a member for a long time, since I was 14. Anyway, so I, I will do the math on that later. Um, but, uh, the, but there's an increase of members. Membership is kind of back. It's kind of a thing again. We have over 100 members this year that added to kind of our community. That's just saying, hey, we, we're, we're in. We're here. We want to be a part of what, what's happening. And I just encourage that there is a movement of the gospel. And I, I do look forward. I mean, I've got my little chart there showing that decline. I really do believe that God can, God can do whatever he wants. God is all powerful. God is good. I just want, I can't wait to maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 50 years that that line goes back up. And we see this movement of the gospel here in the United States as we already are in our, in our church in our community as we seek to transform the East Bay with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's why I brought up what I said about this next generation. There's a their position for revival. Yeah. They're just they're ready, you know, and it's gonna be the outpouring of the truth of Jesus lived out in our lives, moment by moment, day by day, neighbor by neighbor. Um, there is a hunger for something more. And so it just seems like America is, well, the world. But I think even us in our culture are ready for, we're ready for revival, but we got to get under the faucet. And the faucet is the word of God and the gospel of Jesus lived out by each of us moment by moment, day by day.
Did you get to do your story, Randy? Do you want to do your story? You got time. You want to hear my story? You it's actually, um, this, ha- this happened when I was in China um, within my first three years, I think. I had made friends with a young man who was a, a dentist, an oral surgeon. And so we had many opportunities to talk about faith. We talked about life. We talked about politics. Um, and at one point, we were talking about the influence. He was not a Christian. Um, he wasn't a convicted communist, but he had been raised in the communist uh, culture. So he was influenced by that worldview. Um, but we were talking about Christianity, and I was sharing my faith with him. and. He started talking to me about something that I already knew, and I was a little bit surprised that he knew this because um, I wasn't aware that China would teach this kind of thing in their in their history to their their young people. But he told me he talked to me about in the 1800s when missionaries from the West first started going to China, and I went to China because I was deeply influenced by reading a book about a British missionary called Hudson Taylor, who went to China in the mid 19th century and lived his entire life there um, and devoted his life to the Chinese people. And his love for the Chinese is what compelled me to go. So when, when when Christianity went to China in the 1800s and prior to the 1800s, primarily by European missionaries, um, they, they settled in China and they tried their best to have their influence in China. But this Chinese friend of mine was explaining that um, there was a war that was, and some of you may remember studying this. I remember reading about it when I was a student, um, the Opium Wars in China. And the Opium Wars were when the British West Indies uh, Company was trying to find ways to be prosperous. And what they found that they could do was sell opium. This was a British company that was selling opium to the Chinese people and eventually made addicts of a huge segment, a percentage of the population of China became opium addicts. And this was sold to them by a British and um, other European merchants. So they would, they would bring opium in from India on these ships, and they would come into these ports in China, and they would sell the opium throughout the country that was brought in on these ships from India and other places. Well, along with the opium that would come on these ships to China, there were also missionaries that were coming on these ships. And so opium and mission and missions began to be equated in the minds of the Chinese that these foreigners are forcing on us their drugs and also their religion. And so in the mind of my Chinese friend who lived 150 years after that, that was still a huge stumbling block. So when the Opium Wars were fought and eventually the British and the other European powers won these wars so that the ports of China uh, had to be open for the sale and the importation of opium. When that happened, these treaties 
that were written up between the various European countries and China, forcing China to open these ports, they needed to be translated. These treaties had to be translated from English or from French or from Danish or from German or whatever language they were written in. They had to be translated into Chinese. Well, who was going to, who was going to translate these documents? Well, the, the foreigners in China that spoke the best Chinese and wrote the best Chinese were missionaries. And so the missionaries actually translated the documents that were forced upon the Chinese government to open their ports to the importation of, of opium. And so Christianity and Western imperialism became indelibly and permanently intermingled in the minds of the Chinese people. So for many Chinese, even today, they reject the Christian faith. And if you ask them why, they will say because of what happened with the history of missions in our country. Cautionary tale yes. it, it of is even nationalism being by force. What are we exporting? Right, right.